0: bow your heads and pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here among our friends and family, those who you've given us to love and be loved by. Lord, you know how each and every person entered this room this morning. You know who is excited about graduation, about maybe a new relationship or a new baby. But Lord, you also know who is thirsty, who is heavy laden, who feels like they are without rest. Lord, you know the burdens that we are carrying. You know the places where we need to meet you, where we need to know that you are near. So, Lord, I pray that as we examine your word this morning, as we look at this passage, as we see how you've invited us to take a deep drink of the living water that you offer, Lord, that we would bring our questions to your feet and that we would set aside anything that would prevent us from hearing your voice. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen. You may be seated. So as Jeff mentioned, we are in our series called Nine Conversations, where we're going to be looking at some individual dialogues that Jesus had with people he crossed paths with uh, during his earthly ministry. And these dialogues are invaluable to us, I think, because you can learn a lot about a person if you have the opportunity to listen in on their private conversations. And these conversations, even the private ones where it's only Jesus and another speaker present, have been opened up to us through the Gospels for our observation. And so it's our hope that as we examine these conversations that we will discover something of, of the captivating charm of Jesus that seemed to attract so many different people of different, you know, social, economic, religious, and moral backgrounds. Even, even when, as we'll see here, the conversation involves him revealing to them their sin. Because Jesus always tells us the truth. And telling the truth can be pretty hard. Um, When Rob and I first got married, we lived in a little garage apartment in Avalon, which was awesome. Uh, It was so easy to clean. But uh, I worked at Herndon, so I felt like I was just always in the car, just always commuting for a really long time. And even though we'd gone through pre-marriage counseling and we talked about our goals and our dreams and how we would relate to each other's crazy families, there are things that you just don't realize you skipped. Uh, And for us, one of those things was dinner. Who's responsible to make it, what time, et cetera. And he worked closer to Avalon, so he was always getting home before me, but I had it, I had this idea in my head that I was responsible to have dinner on the table as soon as I got home, just you know, for all eternity. And Rob didn't protest, so I assumed he must, you know, think think the same. So one day I'd had a particularly difficult long day at work, and I was getting out late, and so I'm sitting in traffic and I'm just taking a mental inventory of what's in the house so I can figure out what to make for dinner, and I and I figure out. If I just have if I just have an onion, then I can make pasta. So so I call Rob and I'm like, hey, are you at home? And he said, No, I'm I'm at Barnes and Noble. And I said, Oh, okay, well um I got out late, I need to stop, I need to get this onion so that I can make pasta tonight. And he's like, Okay, great, see you in a bit. We hang up. Now secretly I was hoping that he would say, hey, why, why don't you let me get the onion for you? And of course I want him to get the onion for me because he's at Barnes & Noble probably sipping a Frappuccino, reading Monocle magazine, and I'm sitting bumper to bumper getting progressively more angry at the girl in front of me who's abruptly starting and stopping because she's texting while driving. So of course I want you to get the onion for me, but I just don't say anything, I just stew in my rage for about 10 minutes. And finally, I, I decided to call him back. And I'm like, hey, uh, and, and he answers. He's like, yes. And I'm like, would you mind picking up the onion on, on, on your way home? And he's like, yeah, sure, absolutely. So we hang up. But as I continue driving, I start to feel guilty. I start to feel guilty. Like, I'm, I'm the lady. Onions are my department. I'm supposed to do the onion thing. You know, I feel like it's really unfair that I need to get the onion, but maybe I just need to do it anyway because of Ephesians 5.22. So I call him back, and I'm like, my most passive aggressive tone. Hey, if, uh, if you stop to get the onion, am, uh, am I gonna make you late? Am I gonna beat you home? And he's like, yeah, probably. And I was like, fine, I'll get the onion. And I hang up. He's like, oh, okay, okay. And I'm sitting there, and then I start to think, how dare you let me get the onion? How could you? I mean, it's 2012. I have a college degree. Like, I, the, why is dinner my responsibility? So I stop, I get the onion. We pull into the driveway around the same time. I kind of sulk up the stairs, get into the apartment, and I go to start chopping my onion, and I can't because I see that there are there's not a single dish or utensil that's clean in the entire house because someone made midnight pizza. So then I just crack like an egg, and I just am slamming the dishwasher, and I turn around to scold him, and he's standing there behind me, was hand extended out with a flower in it. And he's, I know, I know, I'm the worst. And he's like, I got you this flower. And I was like, I don't want your flower. I wanted an onion. <laughs> just wanted an onion because I just wanted not want to stop and I've had a long day and why do I always have to make dinner? And he goes, Hey, hey, I'm, I'm so sorry. I I knew that today was your long day, so I was actually at Waterford waiting to ask you to come have dinner with me there. Uh, But you called and you seemed so intent on getting the onion that I just thought, oh, she wants to make dinner. So I didn't mention it. Guys, why is it so hard for us to tell each other the truth? You know, I I could have had a delightful dinner of pork belly tacos followed by a hot bag of donuts at Smokey Bones with my husband that day, but I couldn't because I didn't tell him the truth. And he, he didn't tell me the truth. One of the most gracious things that we can do for one another is just tell each other the truth. We're so afraid of it. Think of the last time that you felt like you wanted to tell someone the truth, but you decided not to. What stopped you? Maybe it was a conversation that you felt like you needed to have with a friend who's, who's making bad decisions. Maybe uh, it was telling an adult parent that they've been really pushing up against your boundaries and it's making you uncomfortable. Maybe it was telling your spouse that, you know, you, you, you love him and you're in it for the long haul, but, but you're, just, you're just feeling stuck. What kept you from telling the truth? For me, it's fear. Uh, I'm afraid to upset people. I'm afraid to offend them. I don't want to cause conflict. But if I'm really honest, that's not actually about them. It's about me. It doesn't protect them. It protects me from the discomfort of the conflict, from, from the personal risk Of making them angry and then maybe they turn around and start scrutinizing my behavior and I have plenty to scrutinize I know there's there's a lot of reasons I think that we withhold the truth and and maybe yours are different than mine but but I want to submit to you that that whatever it is that keeps us from telling each other the truth I I don't think it's kindness I don't think it's love So we're picking up this morning in John chapter 4 where Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And this chapter begins with Jesus having to abruptly leave Judea and head back to Galilee. And we're not given a ton of information about why that is. But we can assume that John the Baptist has recently gotten arrested. And and the Jews investigating him know that he's associated with Jesus. So uh, they might be coming for Jesus next. So Jesus wisely makes a quick exit. And the quickest way back to Galilee is right through Samaria. But, as we will read in the passage, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I actually, I like the, the literal translation here. Jews do not share utensils with Samaritans. That's so insulting. I will not share my fork with someone from Oviedo. So mean. So Jesus has been traveling quickly, uh, maybe not a lot of supplies. He's tired, thirsty, hungry. He sits down next to a well, uh, and, and he takes a rest while his disciples go to the town to buy bread. And he's approached by a woman who comes to draw water. So we're going to pick up there, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. I'm going to read this whole passage from verse 7 to 42, omitting just a few verses um, that we're not going to have a chance to get to today. But um, I want you to just try to listen and and, and pay. It's all narrative, so I think it should be fairly easy to just listen to the story um, and follow along. So beginning in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. By the way, I love that note because it's like John just wants us to know Jesus isn't multiplying loaves for funsies when he's hungry. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So so she's surprised that he's talking to her, not only because in rabbinic tradition, a man wasn't, he wasn't supposed to talk to any woman in public, not even his own wife. And she's not only a woman, but also a Samaritan, which we'll talk about later. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? So Jesus is using this term living water and, and by that he is talking about the Holy Spirit. But this woman, when she hears the term living water, she, she thinks that it would, simp- to her that would mean uh moving water, running water, like something coming from a river or a brook um, or a spring. So um, it, there are no living water sources in this area. It's, a, it's an arid place. And so she knows there's no running water around here. And so she's getting a little biting with Jesus. Like, you know, you don't, you don't even have a bucket and there's no rivers around here. Like, what are you trying to pull? So verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Again, she's, she's talking about literal water, but, but she takes the step of asking for Jesus' help, and that's a movement in the right direction. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Kind of a hard turn there, and we're going to come back and talk about that in a bit. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. So at this point, she realizes Jesus is a prophet and he knows a thing or two about her. And so maybe... She's just posing to him her deepest theological question, but I think it's more probable that just having had her sin called out by this man, she understandably just wants to change the subject. So who has it right here? Is it the Jews or is it us? Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So despite her discomfort with the direction this conversation takes, this woman does something great. She stays in the light with Jesus. She stays in the light with Jesus even though she's been exposed and as a result, he reveals his true identity to her. I am the Messiah. I am he. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the the, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So if you've been around church for any length of time, this passage might be familiar to you. A lot of ink has been spilled to describe the way that Jesus meets this woman exactly where she is along the way. She doesn't really understand what she's asking for when she asks him for living water, but he meets her there anyway and, and shows her what she really needs. It's a, it's a beautiful, funny, tender conversion of a woman who has been living a sinful lifestyle for we not know not how long, but as I read it afresh for the first time, uh, this time around, I was struck that it's also a story, I think, I think it's a powerful story about the power of telling the truth. And so that's the lens I primarily want us to look through this morning. John's gospel is, is rife with misunderstandings of, on the part of the people that Jesus is talking to. Here we have a woman who misunderstands what he means by living water. Just one chapter before, uh, Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus, a teacher, a Pharisee, um, and, and he tells him, hey, listen, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, I, I can't go back into my mother's womb a second time. And I, I just I just have to imagine that Jesus is sometimes just like, you're killing me smalls like just wait just wait till chapter six when I tell you I have to eat my flesh and drink my blood like come on work with me but what's wonderful about Jesus in these interactions in his interaction with this woman is that he does not require her to have a complete understanding of what she's asking for before he will meet the need he just wants her to ask He just wants her to move toward him. So this woman takes this important, albeit poorly understood step of asking Jesus for the water he's offering. But then right after she asks for it, right after she takes this step, he seems to take this hard turn. He's like, go go get your husband and and bring him back here and then we'll talk. And he knows their situation. So why does he do this? Why, Why does he say something that it feels like might drive her away from a conversation that he's trying to draw her into? But I think what Jesus is doing here, and I think... What Jesus always does, always does for us when we ask for his help is to reveal to us what it is that we really need. Not the help that we think we need, not even the help that we asked for, but the help that we really need. When we invite Jesus in, he always tells us the truth because the truth is what's gonna help us. I mean, if you're, if you're struggling to open a, a can with a butter knife, a good friend isn't gonna be like, You've got this, man. Just keep going. No, he's going to say, hey, you, you should probably use a can opener for that. That, that, that would be better. It's going to tell us the truth because the truth helps us. One time I was, uh, Rob was away on a trip and I was planning what I was going to do with Ember on Saturday uh, because Saturday is a long day to do with a small child solo, uh, even if you only have one. Um, so you want to have stuff to do. So um, there are only you know, so many episodes of Tom the Tow Truck that one can watch before you start to fantasize about setting fire to your house. Uh, This is all hypothetical. So I was planning what we were going to do, and I decided I'm going to take her to the park. We're going to go on a bike ride around the neighborhood. She has this cute little, you know, pink radio flyer tricycle that she pedals around the neighborhood. It's adorable. So we're ready to go, and I open the door to go outside when it just, the sky bursts into buckets of water that start falling down, pouring rain, big flash of lightning. So I have to turn around, close the door, and look at my little girl, her sweet little face and little pigtails just beaming with excitement to go outside. And I'm like, babe, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, we, we can't go out there. And she Im- instantly is misty eyed. And she's like, but I need to go out there. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. Meanwhile, there's a huge peal of thunder and the ground is shaking underneath of us. And she can see the rain out the window. I'm like, babe, listen, did you hear that? Like there's, it's really bad out there. We can't go out in this storm. And and by this time, you know, the tears, have breached, they're streaming down her face. I mean, she can melt the heart of Lord Voldemort with that face, and I, and I can't, I just can't, but she looks at me right in the eyes and says with just utter sincerity, don't you love me at all? There's shingles flying off our roof. Of course I love you, of course I love you. We have such tunnel vision sometimes for, for, for what we want that we can't see what it is that we actually need Jesus Jesus loves us too much to give us what we want if what we want is gonna get us hurt. So this woman, she finally asked Jesus for his help. Sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back to the well. And the way he offers his help is to tell her the truth about what she really needs because the truth is she didn't need a drink of water from this well. She doesn't need that. She needs to receive the living water from Jesus. She needs to receive Jesus and for her life to be transformed. She needs to leave a lifestyle that, that has her coming at, at what the passage tells us is, is the sixth hour to draw water. That's high noon. That's the hottest part of the day. She comes to draw water at the hardest, hottest part of the day because she's living a lifestyle that, that, that means when, if she goes to the well when other people are around, they will probably shame her. She did not need a jar of water. She needs to hear the truth so that there's at least the possibility for things to get better. So he tells her the truth. You've had five husbands and the man you have now isn't your husband at all. Now I want to make really clear that this is not Jesus trying to embarrass her. He's not trying to embarrass her. It's important to note the tone of this interaction. In fact, he actually starts, he does a classic compliment sandwich. You know the thing that people do when they want to tell you they're like the worst at something? So they put it between two things that you're mildly competent at. Um, I, I, I can't keep a beat and sing at the same time, for example. One time at a, at a worship rehearsal, Andy handed me a tambourine that he wanted me to play for a song. And, and, and you would think that a tambourine is a really easy thing to play, right? It has one job, just jingle, right? So I play it and I feel like I've done well and Andy comes up to me after the song and he says, listen, Kaylee, you are, you are just doing so well on, on those harmonies, I really appreciate that. I don't think the tambourine is going to be your instrument, but uh, you're just killing it on the choruses. Compliment sandwich. So Jesus, Jesus says you're, you're right when you say you have no husband, but the word that translates right here uh, is kalos, which, which uh, translates in other places as lovely or beautiful. He's saying you've done a lovely thing by saying this. You've, you've done something right here. You, you've told me the truth. You, you've done an honest thing because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now you're not married to, you've told me the truth. So even though... Jesus exposes this woman's sins, even though he tells her the truth about what's happening in her life and even though she's so embarrassed that she changes the subject, he takes care to do it in a way that is not intentionally humiliating to her. I mean, I think it's no accident that he's talking to her when she's alone. I mean, did it really take 12 of the other guys to go to the town to buy bread for 13 people? That seems odd to me. I mean, he's, he's alone with her on purpose. He's trying to protect her from, from a potentially very shaming exchange. He's protecting her dignity. And I wanna pause here for a second because I think there is a valuable lesson for all of us Christian people to learn about, about how Jesus approaches this woman. There is a way to tell people the truth. There's a way to tell people the truth who we love, who are in our lives, who we don't love, who are in our lives. There's a way to tell people the truth that does not injure them beyond the, the unavoidable pain of exposure. So this is not Jesus advocating that we, that we go around sneaking up on sin, sinners and busting them in the act. That's not winning anybody for the gospel. I mean, people might call you a tool of the kingdom, but in the words of Anigo Montoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay, this is not what God wants from us. The purpose of revealing her sin to her is not to humiliate, but to heal this woman. You understand, treatment, can only become possible once there's been a diagnosis. Jesus is never trying to hurt us by revealing to us our sin. If you are ever telling someone the truth in order to hurt them, you are not telling them the whole truth because you're leaving out the part where you're rejoicing in their failure, which means you are not seeing them nor their failure in a fair light. Jesus is never trying to hurt us by revealing to us our sin. This kind of exposure is an act of grace so we don't keep following a path that will eventually lead to our destruction now that doesn't mean it's not going to hurt doesn't mean it doesn't hurt that's not trying to humiliate you but there's a certain level of pain that we experience just in the exposure itself my husband uh, convinced me to try crossfit and before you say anything i know that that was a thing i swore i would never do in another sermon fairly recently but he's handsome and persuasive so i went and he had been going for about three months before I started and he would come home his first few weeks with these stories about what the workouts were like and the stories went something like this. So today the workout consisted of everyone forming a line in the class and then taking turns punching me in the face. And then they formed a circle around me and laughed and, and I knew that couldn't actually qualify as cardio so I thought surely he's exaggerating, uh, but, but it seemed like maybe there was some intentional humiliation going on, maybe like a, an, an initiation gauntlet for new people. So, I was really nervous on my first day. I hadn't done anything even remotely athletic in probably about 2 years. So when I got there and I did the class, I realized no no one was shaming me. No one pointed at me and laughed. No one was calling me out for my weakness. However, when we went to pick up our kettlebells for an exercise, the only one I could lift was this teeny little itty bitty baby kettlebell that was also color coded pink, right? So so I had to, I mean, the, 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 the ring to hold the kettlebell was actually bigger than the ball itself. And so I'm swinging my little pink ball, complete with having to stop and rest for sheer exhaustion. I had to do this while the woman next to me is swinging this, you know, enormous, manly, navy blue Sylvester Stallone of a kettlebell and, and just effortlessly up and down beside me. And she was eight months pregnant. So, so there, is a, there is a humiliation that happens even when no one is trying to embarrass you. It's the humiliation of exposure. I mean, these are good people. They're, they're not trying to embarrass me. They're actually trying to help me get more healthy. But, but being around them and all of their monstrosities of muscles, just it, it exposed my weakness. And of course that's painful, of course it's painful, but, but without the exposure, there's no chance to get better. There's no opportunity for change. It's the necessary first step toward getting better. So if you've been exposed, if you got caught and it's painful and, 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 and now you just feel like God is out to get you, listen, he is. He is out to get you, but, but not to punish you. He's out to get you back. He's out to to get you, to rescue you from doing something that might wreck your life. And I know it's painful. I know it. God has rescued me from my own poor choices more times than I care to remember. And it is painful every single time. But if, if pain is what will separate us from our idols, idols of security, wealth, relationships, success, love, if we worship things that don't give us life back, and it's pain that breaks our bondage to these lifeless things, then that pain is not the fury, but the grace of God. I know this woman was experiencing pain, I know it. She's been exposed, this would be a great time to take her jar and go home, and and that's what makes her response so remarkable to me. Her response is to stay in the light. She stays in the light. She's been exposed. She could retreat, but she stays in the light with Jesus. She diverts the conversation because she's embarrassed. She wants to change the subject, but she doesn't leave. She stays in the light with Jesus. I don't know what he's revealed to you that hurts too much to look at, but listen, stay in the light. Stay in the light with him because you have no idea the impact that decision might have. This woman had no idea the impact her decision might have. Not only is Jesus not trying to embarrass her in this exchange, he is enlisting her help to heal a wound that's almost a thousand years old in the life of her people. This remember, this entire conversation is so highly unusual because, as we read, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, Assyria, the, the 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 kingdom of Assyria, had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in the early 700s BC, and they deported all the Samaritans and they brought in Canaanites and, and they brought in their gods to worship. And so the southern kingdom of Judea with Jerusalem in it, um, they looked at the Samaritans as, as, as religiously polluted, but the rift is actually much older than that. So, so before the kingdoms ever actually split into two, before it was Judea in the south and Israel in the north, it was still united under Solomon. And when he died, his son, Rehoboam, was poised to take the throne. Uh, and, and all of the United Kingdom was ready to crown him king, but they just had one little request. They said, hey, can you, just, can you just lighten up a bit? Because your dad really imposed a lot of really heavy burdens on us and we're struggling. Can you just lighten up a bit? But Solomon's son didn't, didn't wanna look weak in front of his friends. And so he said, no, not only am I not gonna lighten up, I'm actually, I'm gonna make the burdens harder. You think my dad was hard? I'm gonna be so much harder than him. And so the 10 tribes in the north revolt and they pick their own king, Jeroboam, to, to be crowned king in what becomes the northern kingdom of Israel with Samaria as its capital. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, becomes king in what becomes the southern kingdom of Judea with uh, Jerusalem as its capital. But here's what happened. The king in the north of, of, of Israel begins to get nervous that if the people start traveling to Jerusalem, to, to the south in Judea, to worship God, that he's gonna lose all his power and slowly be overthrown by Solomon's son. So he says, listen guys, it is just, it's too hard for you guys to be traveling to Jerusalem to worship God, so, so here's what I'm gonna do. He, 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 fit, he fashions two calves out of pure gold. This is starting to sound familiar, right? He, he fashions two idols, out of gold and, 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 and says, look, Israel, here are the gods. Here are your gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set them up in the cities of Bethel and Dan. And then he designates the day for their worship on the same day as the, as the worship festival in Jerusalem. So the one day that people are supposed to be making sacrifices to Yahweh in Israel, they are coming to make sacrifices to these golden calves, these idols that their king has set up. That is why... That is why God-fearing Jews would rather go miles out of their way rather than set foot through Samaria. Because to them, the Samaritans had made a mockery of, of the worship of the one true God. They, they raised their hands on the same day and they offered the same sacrifices, but they offered them to an idol no more divine than a 24 karat cow. They had forsaken God. So there was nothing of merit That could have invited Jesus to this city, to this well, to this woman on this day. Which which is why when he encounters her and reveals who he is and she runs back to the village to tell the people who could rightfully scorn her that she's met the Messiah. And they all come running. there, There is a cosmic triumph here. The host of heaven must be rejoicing as God himself has walked into this God forsaken town just to claim back his long lost bride because not a thousand years of infidelity is enough to extinguish his love. I think we learn a lot about Jesus from this conversation, but the thing that stuck with me most is that he is is never giving up on you. He's never giving up. You think he's given up on you? There is no place in hell he wouldn't go just to get you back. All this was possible, because Jesus told her the truth and she told others the truth about Jesus. And that is the calling that he invites each and every one of us into, no matter your history, no matter your sins, no matter your skill set. And I know you might not think that you could be a representative of Jesus to other people because of all the stuff you've done, but listen, this woman, this notorious woman is the one that God uses to win back people who have strayed from him for a millennia. It's not about your credentials, you understand? God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't look for people who are perfect. He looks for people who are thirsty. This woman's witness is clumsy at best. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? the, The best evangelism, it doesn't necessarily come from people who are most eloquent. It comes from people who are most transformed. She didn't have to be eloquent. She just has to be honest. She just has to be willing to take a risk for others to know the truth that she knows. And it is risky. She's going to people who, who she's been hiding from for years uh, to tell them, hey, everything you he thought about me is right. And this guy knows it. He knows it all. Could this be the Messiah? But what happens? Do they scorn her? Do they mock her? No, they all come running. You don't know who God might have for you to bring back to the water. My brother Jason said his first curse word when he was three years old. Uh, If you've ever been around regroup, you may know some of my story. You may know that most of my family of origin, we are all in recovery for something, for alcoholism, codependency, substance abuse. We're like the golden corral of dysfunction, just a little bit of everything. But I share this with you now to indicate how it's possible that my brother would have come to be familiar with a curse word at such a tender young age. Um, Colorful language was probably the least of our offenses at the time. So Jason's three years old. He's sitting in the back of the car. He's trying. He's in, strapped into his car seat. He's trying to get his shoe on. And I don't know if you've ever seen a toddler try to put a shoe on, but it's awesome. It's just hysterical. They're so bad at it. And so he's like, can't get it. Finally gets fed up, takes the shoe, chucks it at the dashboard, and he goes, Ethan shoe, only said the real word. And my parents are like, where did he learn that word? He learned it from them. I mean, it wasn't me. I hadn't been born yet. It was definitely not me. Uh, They didn't try to teach it to him. They weren't trying to teach it to him. But but in all those little in-between times when they thought he wasn't listening, he learned it all the same. Guys, sin is, is sticky. It's so sticky. It gets on other people whether we want it to or not. It never affects only us. Our sin and our obedience are sticky. It never affects only us. You don't know the ripple effects when you tell the truth or when you withhold it. You don't know if that awkward conversation could eventually save your friend's marriage. Solomon's son didn't know that, that, that saying no to a simple request could lead Israel into a thousand years of idol worship. Eve couldn't have known that when she took a bite of that fruit, it would mean she one day had to watch her children die. We don't know. We cannot know the damage that we will cause with our silence when someone we love needs to hear the truth. And in the same way, we can't know all the good that we have a hand in when we take that risk, when we expose ourselves to possible scrutiny to tell other people the truth. It is is worth the risk. It could save a marriage, which could save a church, which could bring God's word to an entire city Guys, you you are God's plan A for somebody. I promise you, you are. And I'm not telling you that you you can skip the hard work of of staying in the light. You've gotta drink the living water before you can give it out. But listen, all I'm saying is don't let your mess keep you from being his messenger. Because I'll tell you one thing, there is something irresistibly compelling about a person who has been in hell and who has come back living. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you meet us exactly where we are, that even when we don't fully understand what it is that we're asking from you, when, it, when we don't fully understand what we need, the minute we turn to you, the minute we ask for your help, you meet that need. Sometimes simply by revealing to us the truth of our predicament, the places that we need to walk away from, the places that we need to walk toward. Thank you that you never leave us in the dark. Lord, I pray that each and every person here today would be able to stay in the light with you. Whatever it is you're revealing to them about themselves, whatever it is you're asking them to do, in terms of sharing your truth with someone else. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would have the courage to move toward you, to take those next steps, to trust that no matter how awkward it is or how painful it is or no matter how much we don't know how it's going to end, Lord, that you have all things under your control and you have been grooming us for this. You have called us into this and you will see it through. Lord, I pray that you would be near to each of us as we examine our own selves, as we see what it is you want us to forsake and what it is you want us to move toward, Lord, give us courage. Give us love and give us hope that you will be with us every step of the way. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.